when you're from West Virginia, you kind of have this nagging voice behind you saying you need to just work. You just give this shit up. Just work a day job. You got it's hard enough around here as it is to become anything in the art field. Welcome to Appalachian Startup, stories of new ideas that eventually became thriving businesses in areas that most would consider a bad investment. I'm J.D. Belcher, and I started this podcast because I took the same path as a lot of these folks. I'm a former coal miner, and now I make films through my own production company called JJN Multimedia. I wanted to hear others speak of their journey to not only give new beginners hope, but to help me grow as a fellow entrepreneur. As soon as Chris Ojeda picked up a guitar, he knew that he was destined for greatness in the heavy metal music world. He just wasn't sure at first if that would be in Appalachia. Thankfully, that was the case when he started a heavy metal band in the early 2000s called Byzantine. They quickly grew a massive cult following and was soon sharing the stage with metal icons such as Anthrax and Lamb of God. Their rise in the ranks was a tidal wave until breaking up after the release of their third album, Oblivion Beckons, in 2008. The band reunited in 2013 and picked up right where they left off. Chris speaks about the realities of being a paid musician in the hills, and I couldn't have been happier as a huge fan of Byzantine myself since the early years. Enjoy. Well, um, Byzantine is a band that uh, I formed in the summer of 2000. So uh, I guess next year will be our 20th, 20th year as a as a heavy metal band from West Virginia. So I was in my um, senior year of uh, school at WVU, and um, I was in a local band up there. We weren't that great, Um, and it kind of fizzled. So I always wanted to play with a guitar player named Tony Rohrbaugh, who's from Weston, West Virginia, and he he formed a band called Temper that uh, was really – you know, ahead of the game uh, as far as like progressive modern metal coming from West Virginia. <clears throat> He's a fantastic guitar player, uh, incredible songwriter, and we were friends. So he was playing in Chum at that time when they were signed to Century Media Records. And I guess he had left that band at the same time I dissolved the band I was in. So I thought, well, I'm I'm graduating school, Morgantown. I'm from Logan, West Virginia. So I'm going to move back home. I'm going to contact Tony, see if he'd be willing to play with me. And luckily he said, yeah, let's let's give it a go. And uh, that was pretty much the formation of, of Byzantine. So um, I'm the only not living member. <laughs> I'm the only uh, original member left. So. so, you know, did you all just start jamming on, you know, cover songs or did you start writing songs right away or how did that work we we started writing right away me and tony were both more uh original songwriters uh we were you know obviously a little older i was about 22 he was about 24 25 so we had already been doing the whole cover band route a long time ago so i wanted to do something original um and uh, we just got together. He had some stuff left over from Temper. I had stuff left over from my band, and we kind of put it together. He was living in Huntington at the time. And um, at that point, the West Virginia music scene was kind of on fire. Um, there was a lot of venues in Charleston, a lot of venues in Huntington. Huntington had a great music scene around the 2000s. X1 X106.3 had X-Fest, which had became a really um, instrumental music festival around here. And they gave bands an opportunity to open up the stages if you were local. They had a thing, I don't know if it's called Loud and Local or whatever, but they would play your music on X106. If if you got some uh, if you had some street heat on you, then they would let you play X Fest. So that was my main goal. I was like, I want to play X Fest. I want to play that big stage. Let's put some stuff together and get it on X one hundred six. We wrote like four songs. We didn't have a drummer, so it was just drum machine drum machine stuff. 
um, it was okay. It was definitely the uh, the beginnings of what Byzantine would come would become <clears throat> a little more straightforward. Uh, but we put it out there, and uh, people really dug it. Um, that was during MySpace time, so we had a MySpace, and uh, you know X106 started playing it a lot. So we was able to play that first year we got together. We uh, landed a gig at X Fest, and I was like, "Oh man, this is this is awesome! This is mission accomplished." And so we went down there and just sucked <laughs> in front of everybody. Our drum machine skipped <laughs> on stage. Like, start playing the song, skip. Oh man, we gotta find us a drummer. Did you keep playing the same riff, like, or did it just skip? Dude, to I think of our song? guitar player went over there and hit stop and like started back over. <laughs> so <laughs> that's great. Nobody really knew, um, you know, if we were starting another song or whatever. Um, sure. But we we were able to play X Fest like four times through our you know until the uh dissolve of of uh 106 but you know so it was it was great yeah i remember that because uh we was in a band and we got a song played on there yeah and uh we was just freaking out it was really cool to have in this area um so yeah when when you first started uh did you how did you develop your your voice because it's obviously one that sticks out in the metal genre you know, all of the bands you can that I can think of that I love have the singer with this specific sound to their right. voice, and they create their own kind of sound. How did you develop that? Well, I developed it mainly out of uh, <clears throat> necessity more than want. I never really wanted to be the singer. Um, I just ended up being a singer. Um, it, it financially it helped because that was one less person we had to put in the van. Um, one less ego to deal with. So when we first started, I was really bad. Um, I was just developing my heavy uh, gruffness. I couldn't sing at all. Um, is Can we cuss here? <laughs> uh, sure, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so I couldn't sing at all. Um, so, and with me having my kind of thick southern accent, it was it was hard to mask mask that. So I basically listened to the guys that I thought had great voices, Chuck Billy from Testament, Phil Anselmo from uh, Pantera, uh, Michael Ackerfeld from Opeth. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, and then I, I loved Meshuggah, uh, Jans Kidman. Uh, they were a Swedish, Swedish band. Mm-hmm. So I would just emulate them just to try to cover up my, my accent. And I got to a point where I was like, oh, okay, I'm starting to develop my own style. Um, My main influence as a heavy metal vocalist is a guy who most people don't know. His name is Kyle Thomas, and he played in the band from from Louisiana called Exhorter. They've been broken up for 23 years, and they just now reunited and put out an album. If anybody out there is interested to hear the progenitor of where my voice came from, they can go Google Exhorter and listen to their new album. You can hear what I've been trying to do my whole life. (laughs) And luckily, uh, I've became friends with Kyle. Now, I've got his phone number. He's came to our shows in uh, New Orleans, and it's almost like meeting the guy who you had on your walls that you wanted to emulate the whole life. You know what I mean? Um, so that's basically how I developed my voice. But it took many years. Uh, I, I would I would say that I've probably not became a decent singer within just the last three or four years to where I'm starting to get full control. A lot of people say that the the male voice doesn't really develop until in their late 30s, early 40s. So now I'm starting to feel a lot more confident with that. Right. Did you blow your voice out a lot in the in the early stages? All the time. <laughs> that is one of the reasons why we have never got to another level is because we didn't tour enough because I was always sick. We would go out and we'd play two weeks with the Lamb of God or Shadows Fall or somebody like clockwork a weekend a voice would be gone you know um it was a mental mental roadblock i started singing wrong uh started pushing out of the wrong you know not using my diaphragm 
at, you know, uh, when we were signed to Prosthetic and uh, on our, I think our second or third album, when we really caught fire, we were touring with a lot of good bands. And I did not know that I had uh, a uh, auto, a, a, it's an autoimmune disease. I have a thyroid uh, disorder called Graves disease. So it went undiagnosed and uh, I was out on the road dealing with this uh, overactive thyroid and it pushes on your vocal cords and can cause stress. I would just think I was out, you know, uh, you know, under the weather or my allergies, but I had this Graves disease I was dealing with for a couple of years. Uh, I didn't really find out about it until I went through a full, what they call a thyroid storm when we was on the road with Shadowfall, where I started hearing voices, um, getting a little bit like suicidal. And I was just thinking I was having a nervous breakdown. I couldn't sing at all. Um, so once I got that uh, irradiated, I had to have some some radiation treatment. After that, I started, okay, now I actually can sing. Oh, I can I can do three shows in a row. I can do a week in a row now. But by that point, um, the bus had almost left. You know what I mean? Because we had put out four albums, done hardly no touring, and if you know anything about the music industry, you have to strike while the iron's hot or it will pass you by. You know, we so. So is that around Oblivion Beckons time? Yeah. Right in there? Yeah. 2007 uh, was our third album, Oblivion Beckons. And um, I was that was when I was dealing with the Graves disease really bad. We ended up breaking up for about five years. Right. And uh, throughout those five years, you know, obviously you love music and that's why you got into it. You know, was that tough on you to figure out like, man, like we're not going to play anymore when you first did that? Like how hard was it to walk away those first five years? It was incredibly difficult. Uh, it was, uh, I would say it was the most miserable five years I've ever had in my life. I had a, my first wife. Uh, she wasn't, um, she wasn't really high on the band or me going and touring. So I had that external influence of like, you need to stay home. You need to be, you know, you need to be a good husband, a future good father. Stop doing this band shit. So I kind of use that as an excuse to to tell the guys like, hey, I don't want to tour no more. I don't want to do this. You know, and then the band completely dissolved. We broke up the day after we released our third album, which pissed the record label off because they lost like forty, fifty thousand dollars because we just quit. Sure. Um, Yeah. Those five years, I didn't do a lot of sleeping, you know, because I was thinking I'm making a giant mistake. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that album blew up, too. So what what was it like to sit there and be like, well, we don't have a band no more and everyone is loving this album and we could, you know. Uh, I was like a punch in the gut. Right. Because I knew at that point we were going to be able to, they were going to put us on stage with Kill Switch and, you know, the bigger bands maybe get out on OzFest when it was going. And we just, we kicked our our own legs out from under us, you know. Mm-hmm. It, when you're from West Virginia, you kind of have this um, nagging, uh, voice behind you saying, you know, you need to just work. You just give this shit up. Just work a day job. You got it's hard enough around here as it is to become anything in the art field. How are you going to, you know, become a rock star or whatever? It doesn't happen to anybody here. So I had that. I had my wife, and then I had the vocal issues going, and it just kind of, uh, you know, beat me down to the point where I thought, well, we just need to need to give it up. Nobody, nobody makes it from here. So I, you know, I read a bunch of articles where they gave us great reviews, and then I just stopped. I just turned everything off. I was like, I, I just got to start mowing grass and and delivering pizzas at Hussins and just be a dude. Right, yeah. well, sucked. As a <laughs> as an Appalachian metal fan, the cool thing was, you know, I would just listen to Sirius Radio, and I all of a sudden heard this band Byzantine, and then I found out where you were from. And it blew my mind and, and just hearing, you know, Jeremiah and Aiden and they shall take out up serpents. I bought that CD and I was like, man, this is the baddest shit on the planet. So you and, reverse engineered us. You found us out from yeah. California as opposed to. I was listening on 
uh, Sirius Radio, which I was a coal miner. So yeah. that's all I would do is listen to satellite radio. And I remember hearing this band. And we was in a metal band. And we was kind of checking out the local bands. And then Mike told me, like, yeah, man, they're, like, from – like the Charleston Logan area. Mm -hmm. And it really inspired me to just like, man, these guys are just as good as, as the best out there. And they've got this particular sound that's just, you know, so catchy and we were just rooting for you. And, and I, and I remember being sad when I found out you all broke up that first time. I was like, man, I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah I really do. So how did, um, you know, how did it get back together? When did you decide like, you know, let's give this another go? Well, um, <clears throat> About five years went by. <clears throat> we had we had done some reunion shows during that time, but Tony had he was disgusted that I had laid down the gauntlet and said I'm, I don't want to tour no more because at that point he had just got a, a divorce, so he was a hundred percent ready to all in. And then I go, eh, you know, my wife kind of wants me to stay home, so he was like, oh, you <laughs> so. That five years, it was like a divorce. Me and him never spoke, uh, but he moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, and in his 30s, he ended up having a heart attack. Oh, wow. So I wanted to reach out and, and offer my condolences and tell him I love him and stuff. So once we started talking again, the other guys said, let's, let's do this. Let's put the original band back together just for fun. We don't have to tour. We got kicked off prosthetic records. No outside influence. We still felt like, you know, uh, we were all still writing demos. So we had Byzantine music piling up. We just didn't have a band. So when Tony said, you know what, I'll move back to, <clears throat> I'll move back to West Virginia and maybe we can just get in a garage and see what happens. And that's when we got together and within like two months, we rehearsed and had all the music for the fourth album, which was the self-titled which ended up getting probably the biggest reviews uh, of our career. So it had the song Solar Racer. That was our video. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm getting royalty checks for that every, every month. So that, that album was a really good, like, oh, shit, they're back. You know, and that album also solidified that I was like, I did the wrong thing, quitting. I'm never quitting again. If my wife doesn't like it, she don't have to be my wife. So then we end up divorcing. And was that was that self-distributed or mm -hmm. okay, so what was the difference, you know, from self-distribution to being on a label? I imagine there's some pretty big differences, you know, is creative freedom one of them or it was prosthetic pretty pretty free and trusted you guys to do your thing. So prosthetic was really free on what uh they allowed us to do. Uh at, you know, once we got Serpents out, the second album, and it kind of caught fire. They were like, okay, you're you're hitting a stride. You have an actual sound. Just keep giving us that. That's fine. You've got this southern swing mixed with the uh, off-time polyrhythmic, you know, Meshuggah stuff. And then later on, like on Oblivion Beckons, we started adding the more clean, proggy stuff that uh, Opeth and Catatonia was doing. So... In that aspect, releasing a uh, album on our own, we still had the same creativity. The only thing was is that we didn't have the distribution behind us, the marketing arm that Prosthetic had because they were attached to Epic Records. So everything had to be do ha had to be done on our own, which was uh, it was a uh, really really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. Because we were have to melon melon every CD out ourselves and doing all this stuff, yeah. So we at that point we had found um, I think it was Kickstarter. So we we crowdfunded that album, and we were able to generate enough money to pay for the recording of that album. Everything else, I think, I had to take a loan from my mom, I believe, for about nine grand to help for to pay for the pressing of the CDs and stuff like that. So, you know, it taught me a lot of how to manage and market my own band. Um, but it also taught me uh, a lesson in that sometimes if you burden yourself uh, too much, you can end up losing focus on what is most important. You know, that's why there's record labels out there that still exist, uh, like Metal Blade and, you know, Roadrunner. They still got A&R people. 
they still got uh, guys you can talk to because they're doing the stuff that, you know, artists really don't have time to do. Right. Well, I'm assuming they, they book your shows and are, are kind of like, you know, do they, when you schedule like a tour, for instance, do you give them like a range of dates or they, do they just tell you essentially like, here's when you can play, here's who you're playing with, can you do it or not? Okay, so booking uh, is completely separate than the record industry. Uh, Prosthetic and Metal Blade now, who we're assigned to, they have no interest in helping with booking. I thought that, oh, we're going to be a Metal Blade now. I, Brian Schlegel, uh, who is the man, he's going to just call people and stuff. He's too busy doing other stuff. So they rely on us to hire our own booking agent, and then the booking agent finds us stuff. And that's been a, a, an arduous task in itself. Um, we've never had a very easy go at booking. Um, one, because we're older and we can't go out for free. We, we aren't rich, so we can't do buy-ons. Like a lot of these younger bands and stuff, they'll go pay ten twenty thousand dollars $20,000 to buy onto a tour. That's how Trivium got big. Oh, wow. Yeah, Trivium's parents were the uh, managers of them when they were young, and they would just buy on, buy on tours, like immediately going out with tour buses. We can't do that. So it's been really difficult we're in a really unique situation where we've got a 20-year discography and people are uh you know they expect us to tour but we we're not headliners but we're also not openers right (laughs) well and trivium that that was before the internet age wasn't it like you know it was harder to get exposure so i could understand why bands would do that yeah yeah they blew up on myspace Mm -hmm. yeah myspace but it was before facebook right Right, and you and you mentioned MySpace. So, you know, one thing I was wondering, we were wondering, is you know, there's been a, a few different iterations of Byzantine, yet always you're able to find this Appalachian talent that is second to none. So, th- where did you find this pipeline for the best musicians in the hills, basically? <laughs> well, luckily, um, I. I knew that there was a couple counties that just seemed like they always grew talent. You know, Kanawha County and uh, whatever county, uh, Lewis County. Um, Lewis County is a hotbed of talent. I don't know why. <laughs> it just is. Um, so when I was when I moved to Charleston, our, our drummer, Matt Wolf, who played on like four of our albums, he tried out – and he had only been playing drums for maybe three months. He's a guitar player. So we put him in the band. And then um, I'll tell you what, the key that we have found to finding incredible talent locally is not limiting them to their own instrument. We've pulled in guys who are ta- who are just multi-talented and said, hey, can you play bass? (laughs) Yeah, I I know you're a guitar player and a singer, but as long as you can play bass, you know, you can get in here. If they're talented on the other things, they can transfer it over. I realized that playing with Matt Wolf, who could just jump right on drums because he's this guitar wizard and he could pick it up. So almost everybody that's played in Byzantine is just more of a uh, multi-instrumentalist, like, artist Mm -hmm. and then we just you know hone make ourselves good at what we're doing right do you have a process like not creatively but do you have to sit down and just go have dinner with them first or see if you get along or does that even matter when it comes to writing songs you know i've been lucky in the fact that everybody that has played in byzantine i have been friends with and they've either opened up for us so I have a history of them. So I already, I've already vetted them. I know they're good dudes. Our drummer now is Matthew Bowles from uh, Beckley. He's a young kid. When we got him in the band, his uh, his band had opened up for us like multiple times. So I knew he was a good cat. Our malignant beloved, uh, yeah, our malignant beloved. They was playing when we were playing, and we and yeah. we just always wanted to go see them. We never got to make it. Yeah, out. Yeah, they were super technical. Um, good kid. Our bass player now, Ryan Postlethwaite, he's from uh, he's from Lewis County. You know, um, he lives in Pittsburgh. He's a guitar player and a singer. But I was like, I, ne- 
You're awesome at that. I know you can play bass. You know, it's just always been somebody that has either opened up for us. The only in, uh, musician that we've ever played with was Sean Sidner, who was a true bass player, and I didn't know him. Um, we brought him in just based on the fact that he was an incredible bass player. Turned out at the end, lacked some some band member attributes that we needed. You know, so that had to be uh, um, that had to be squashed. But gotcha. Yeah, well, I just vet them. You know, hopefully I don't have to do it again. I'd love to finish my career with this lineup because everybody in the band now is just great human beings. So you know, compared to when you first started to now, is the is the creative process the same when you sit down to write a song how does it start is everyone different or do you start with a riff on an acoustic or what what is it so i've always had the same um methodology of constructing byzantine songs i'll have my phone and i have a ton of voice memos of me just going you know what i mean stuff like that i keep that and a lot of times, I already have all of the song titles picked out before I wrote any music. Like right now on my phone, I have all the song titles and the, and the album name for the next album, but no riffs. Right. And everybody's like, why the f*** did you do that? <laughs> it's like, because I want themes, and then I can write, song, write stuff and fit it to that. We all kind of demo things at our house. All of us now have uh, our own little personal uh, home, stu- home studios. So I'll, I'll demo stuff out, and then the other guys will demo stuff out. I, I write the majority of the stuff, and they're cool with that because they know that the style is going to come from that. But the other guys, if they got good stuff, it gets in there. Mm-hmm. So doing that, uh, which do you have your phone with you? I'd love to hear you just sitting there mouthing Mouthing yeah, riff if you had phone. one. Okay. When we go we'll do that it. later. We'll do that later. <laughs> yeah. I got to hear that. Um, so so that's awesome that you kept the process the same. I, I would love to be able to uh, just get in a room and jam with the guys. But when your bass player lives in Pittsburgh, drummer in Beckley, me and the guitar player here, and we got kids, it's just not feasible. So n- when we were younger, we would get together and re and practice. But now, the whole thing is, we all practice at home. We get together and rehearse. Don't don't come here and waste my time practicing. You should already be practiced. Let's rehearse. <laughs> yeah, so. Right. And did the internet help? Like you know, now you can do that. You can record like. Uh, he records with his brother in Chicago. Like, did the internet make it accessible and and create a, a better workflow instead of you know getting? Of course, we all love to get together and jam, like yeah. you mentioned. But how, how did that streamline things? I think it streamlined things immensely for the way that I do things, which is you know construct things at the house anyway. Because then I can go ahead and send the ideas, send stems. Which is stems is just like you know different breakdowns. Here's the drums and here's the guitar. I can send them to our bait or our drummer, and he can go and listen to the drums, take them out, put his own fake drums in, send it back. I want this, you know. So it's made things a lot more efficient. That way, when we get together and we start actually rehearsing for the new album, we've all kind of got a, an idea of of where the stuff is going. Because nobody wants to stand around for an hour being like, hey, man, I got this riff. Hey, just just, just bear with me now. You know what I mean? We ain't got time for that. Right. Like, right. <laughs> that would be cool. But You mentioned earlier about covering up your Appalachian accent. Did you figure out later, like, you know, that's what makes me unique? <clears throat> yeah. And did you just start, you know, embracing it? Well, uh, I, when I speak, it's always been there. So I, I've never really tried to cover it up. I, my first year at college, when I left uh, Chapmanville High School, I got accepted into Baylor University. And I got on a plane and I left and I said, I'm never coming back. I'm going to where Pantera is at. And I remember when I went down there, the girls thought that, you know, the accent was kind of cute. So I was like, oh, I'm I'm rolling with this. <laughs> but I... I've also noticed that when when I, when we do a lot of touring and we go to areas where people don't hear a lot of or uh, the Appalachian accent, they really are in in it's endearing to them. It makes it soothing to them. They like they like the slower draw. So 
I don't play it up, but I don't cover it up. Right. Now, when we sing, there is absolutely no way that my accent would affect the band's music in a positive way. Right. So it's, you know, it's got, I've got to sound like this dude that's from nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. Just nowhere. Just nowhere. Just a homogenous, like. Yeah. From the field of Braveheart, basically, <laughs> is, is the way I would say. True. Um, and, and you could tell kind of in your songwriting, um, you know, your, your lyrics that you've been, uh, you know, you hear the stigmas of Appalachia and you can tell that it affects you. I can't remember which song it is, but you had a, a lyric that said these West Virginia Hills don't sedate me in the first album. Yeah. And Hatfield. Yeah. Hatfield. And, yeah. and, you know, hearing that, you know, I get it. And at the same time, it's like, you know, we're underdogs. You know, that's what it, oh, yeah. that's what it gave to me. So have you? how did you bring that out on tour to other bands when you would represent Appalachia and you'd meet these guys? We tried to, we tried to wave the flag. Um, you know, there was only a few bands in front of us that was out touring at the time when we started touring. Uh, Chum from Huntington, Carmen DeBurn from Morgantown, Zao from, uh, I think, the Parkersburg area. Um so we were like, hey, let's champion this, you know. Um, so I made sure that, you know, a lot of our songs in our set list at that time was uh, West Virginia themed. We would play Redneck War, which is about the Battle of Blair Mountain. Um, we'd play Hatfield, Taking Up Serpents, which is about the, you know, Pentecostal serpent handling. Um now in the, in recent albums I've kind of got away from that because I didn't want to just be a one trick pony. Um but still those seem to be the songs that people want to hear. Even we go to places and it's like younger cats that's never seen us. They've listened to Jose on Sirius, Pumpin' Hatfield, and when we get to that part we'll be somewhere in Battle Creek, Michigan and somebody will be like West Virginia. <laughs> I'm like, "Oh man, this is killer." Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I was going to uh interject um sure, go ahead. Uh, someone that actually helped us kind of push the West Virginia flag out there on a, a larger scale was when we were touring with Lamb of God a lot. Randy, the uh, singer of uh Lamb he loved the idea of us pushing that because they really carry the Richmond flag really hard. Uh, a lot of times their set list, their whole backdrop would be like, like uh, you know, it'd have like Richmond, Virginia type stuff. Um, you know, Clutch always push, pushes the Maryland flag. <clears throat> so it's a few bands were out there doing it. But when we would play with the Lamb of God, Randy would always jump up on Hatfield and sing the West Virginia part. He loved it. And then when, you know, people would see that, they'd be like, oh, man, you know, West Virginia's cool. Yeah. You know? so, That's awesome. Yeah. You, know, you go out and you break those stereotypes. People are always like, man, you got your teeth. I'm like, yeah, a lot of us do. You know, it's just... It's a stereotype. That's always a fun conversation. You know, you meet someone or you're out of state, you know, like when we're doing video work, they'll kind of yeah. rub you. And I'm like, man, you know, I'd never say that to you. <laughs> I know. You know. How do you do that? Like, <laughs> they think it's okay because it's like, uh, one, West Virginians are probably nice people. And, and two, they think that, you know, stereotypes are typically true. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And, 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 at the same time, I kind of welcome it because it's like, yeah, now it's my chance to change your mind and hopefully I affect you in a positive way and you remember this. Everybody loves the underdog. Mm -hmm. We we do a lot of uh, – we play a lot of shows in New York City and, uh, you know, those people are fighting for an identity. Those bands have a hard time. There's 400 bands per borough and you know they're all trying to fight for some identity and stuff and we're able to just roll in and people are like oh there's some West Virginia boys it's time it's getting ready to get real <laughs> that's it <laughs> yeah that's it. so um what's the biggest show you ever played do you remember mm, or was it a group of shows I'm trying to think um we you know we did a few um festivals in our in the early part of our career that looking back uh or probably were probably really big um but at the time i didn't think they were because a lot of those bands were still up and coming you know there was a uh 
what was it called? Loco Bazooka. I think it was up near Massachusetts. And I didn't know most of the bands, but then turned out it was like Life of Agony and Five Finger Death Punch and, you know, Dope. And and then we were sandwiched in between all these bands. We used to always play these uh, New Jersey Metal Fest too, New England Metal Fest. And I remember one year we were supposed to be on the second stage and they bumped us to the first stage and put us between like Archie and me and Kill Switch. And... I was like, you know, crapping my pants. That was a big show, you know. Right. What was it like? I'm, you know, I imagine a lot of these bands you listen to, uh, you know, growing up and stuff. You know, what was it like getting to share the stage and meet these people? Oh well, at the time you're you're so uh, you're so just focused on not screwing it up that you kind of <laughs> don't get to enjoy it, especially when you're a younger band like we were. The older bands would get there early, they get to good spots, they get the sound check. We'd have to throw and go, you know, get up on stage. Hey, don't step on the you know, don't don't touch the mics. That's just where it's at. And then you play for fifteen twenty minutes and get off there and be like, oh man, I, what happened, you know. Um, now, uh, as an older guy, it's starting to get real fun because now we get to go out and actually play with some of the bigger bands. I think, what was it, maybe a year or two, uh, we we played with Testament and Anthrax um, and then Lamb of God and Behemoth in the same weekend. And that was, that was life-changing for me because I grew up as a Scott Ian fan. Anthrax is one of my biggest influences. The first band I ever saw – in Charleston, Anthrax played with Iron Maiden, and I was 18, and I was just like, it's okay, this is what I'm doing, this is it. So get to sharing the stage with them as an older guy, it's like real affirming. Not only that, but do you do you feel like, I'll say friendly competition when you get up there, because you just like, yeah, I'm, it's time for us to hold our own, because we write back shit. Yeah. And it's time for people to hear that. Or like, is everyone? I know, I know everyone's personality is different, but do you kind of sense a friendly competition when you get up there? Or oh is yeah, without without a doubt. Now, uh, yeah, when we were young, we were always just getting waxed by every band, uh, and that's part of the learning uh, curve. You know, you're not supposed to come out there on your first album and, and destroy people. You're supposed to get destroyed and then learn from that. Now, like when we do, you know, we play with Testament or Anthrax, and, and I'll be like, you know what? 90% of this crowd has no idea who the hell we are. But when we leave here, we're going to sling merch. We're going to turn heads because we've been doing this a long time. I know what I'm doing. And and it's always fun just to see that first or second song go by and, and people just drop their phones and start watching and be like, who the fuck <laughs> is this? Oh, yeah, it's, it's not kidding. 90%. No <laughs> way, man. I'm glad you're humble, but. Yeah, it, it's no killer. Way. You know, but I still, you know, I'm at the point now where I, I micromanage, and so do the other guys. Like we can have a great show, but we get off the stage, and I'm like, man, I was, my my E was a little bit out of tune on that song, or accidentally stepped on this pedal wrong, and you know. But I guess that kind of keeps us on our toes, right? And you mentioned merch. So how do you? Uh, what's the basic business model of a band? Like, how do you bring in? sustainable revenue streams well okay in in the hard rock and heavy metal industry touring is your lifeblood that's where you make your money uh randy from lamb of god has always said i am just a glorified t-shirt salesman that's where they all make their money the merch if uh the albums a lot of times they don't even break even they're just uh they get um Money up front, you know, tour support, stuff like that. They get the album paid, and then they go out and sling merch to try to pay that stuff off. And then with the onset of streaming over the last decade, uh, bands have saw their album sales just diminish. So they're not making money much money off that. <clears throat> we are in a weird situation. We're in the inverse. Like, we don't make a lot of money touring. Um, we go out, we might, you know, sometimes make 250 bucks a show or we might take 500 bucks but when you're taking into account the gas and the guys you know and then these other bands are making thousands um when we go out and tour we know we're going to take ass kicking financially byzantine makes more money from our royalties from our album sales so we're like inverted of what the actual uh, model should be um i don't know how that happened you know, every month we get checks coming in from three or four different sources strictly based on um, 
Music Choice TV and Sirius. Um, so it's it's been it's kind of weird. Did uh, you see a big change from uh, CDs compared to streaming? Like, uh, given that access to people, did you see sales pick up or did you see them like people are just buying singles now or? I saw it pick up for us, um, but mainly because we're still uh, a relatively undiscovered band as far as the global thing. You know, I talk to people a lot around here regionally and they're like, what are you talking about, man? You guys are big. I'm like, us and Slipknot are a whole different thing. You look at our Facebook thing, we got like 14,000 fans. They got about 14 million. So there is a lot of people out there in different countries that don't really know who we are. So we didn't really take a big hit on the CD thing because it's always been, you know, trickled in. And now that Jose and all of them pump the, uh, the uh, Byzantine a lot, we get more money. I saw it affect the guys who tour for a living. You know, the uh, arch enemies and the carcasses and, you know, annihilators, bands are out there. They don't have day jobs. They're taking giant hits because they were selling a lot of CDs and now they're getting that little Spotify check. Right. And you mentioned other jobs like, you know, Appalachia is notorious for people figuring out how to take care of themselves and, and you know, you're a contractor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what made you start? that path in 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 life have you always been a contractor before the band or did you pick that trade up as you went along i picked that up uh during the five-year hiatus um, because i had just bought my first home and uh, my dad is a you know he's talented with all things you know mechanical he was a worked at hobet mining for that's where i get this old hobet family day shirt oh, nice. this thing is 30 years old and i still wear it <clears throat> um so he kind of said, you know, if you own your own home, you're going to spend a lot of money if you don't know how to work on it. So he would show me how to lay tile or fix drywall. And at that point, I was like slinging pizzas. Um, I would, you know, uh, I was, I delivered drugs for a while legally. Right. um, (laughs) In Logan and stuff for McKesson. Sure. Um, and I knew I wanted a different career change. So I thought, you know, I'll just get in this contracting thing. I like laying tile. And it just blossomed into me having my own uh, bathroom renovation construction thing. And luckily I did because now I can afford to take a couple weeks off and go tour with my guys if I need to and not take a giant financial hit. Um, also, you know, if I'm my own boss, nobody's going to fire me. So, so you already had that mentorship in place for how to figure out the business model, what to charge, you know? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I had some friends that did it. I, there was a lot of uh, figuring stuff out along the way. But, you know, I've been doing it for uh, a little bit over a decade now. And it's probably <clears throat> going to be my last job I ever have other than being a musician. But like I said, it, it has allowed me to become a musician as well. Where before, uh, you know, if I was delivering pizzas at Husson's, I had to just do that because I made so little amount of money, I couldn't go out and lose money on tour. It we wouldn't cover the mortgage. But now I'm like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna fuck off for two weeks. I'm gonna go play, and we've got some money in the bank account because I learned how to lay tile. Which brings us to the building we're sitting in. Um, what led you to want to start your own studio? Well, for uh, about four or five years, we rehearsed in a uh, old Heiner's Bread Factory here in Charleston, West Virginia, <clears throat> and it became known as the Bakery. Um, there was a gentleman that owned it. He was way in over his head. The building was falling apart. There was no AC, no heat, and it rained inside every time it rained outside. But it was like a, a, uh, a spot where bands would uh, rehearse. Uh, because he knew he could rent out shitty rooms to bands because they didn't care. So we rehearsed there for a while, and um, all of us bands kind of pulled together and tried to help the guy save the building, almost like, you know, break into Electric Boogaloo. If, you know, we tried to save the community center. Uh, a contractor um, came in and uh, leased the whole building and effectively kind of squeezed us all out. So we 
you know, we had a room and I converted it into our rehearsal space studio. I built extra walls. We had a, a window. We had a control room and a live room. It's where we recorded our debut for the uh, for a metal blade, the cicada tree. We recorded it there. We shot all f- the last four or five music videos in that building. So when when we got kind of squeezed out, <clears throat> I had a really bad taste in my mouth over that. I was like, man, I spent so much time and effort in that building and just to be kicked out. Yeah, I'm like, I'm 44 years old. I ain't never going to get kicked out of my, my place again. Like this band deserves a spot. And I was like, but so do these other bands. So I decided uh, when I sold my home a year ago, uh, I moved in with my uh, girlfriend slash fiance, who was an amazing support in my life. We bought another home and she said, I'll put the mortgage under my name so you don't have to be attached to that and you can take your money and do something, get you guys a studio. So I was able to come and, and purchase this building on the west side and um, and you know develop a music facility for Byzantine and for any other aspiring artists that want to come here 24-7, free of constraint, never be kicked out. So that's why we're here. How are you going to make this building sustainable? Well, uh, that's that's a good question, J.D. <laughs> <laughs> Figuring that out right Figuring now. Figuring that out as we go. Um, I've never been the guy to have a backup plan, so I'm kind of just throwing myself in it and hoping that it'll work. I, you know, I've I've recorded or I've rehearsed in basements, in um, bedrooms, and in places like the bakery. I know what bands need to have to be creative. I've uh, you know I kind of got the idea for this when we went to Nashville. Um, we were on tour and we stopped, and there's music facilities there where these bands they have great soundproof rooms they can rehearse twenty four seven. They have a studio there where they can come in and do what they want. I said, man, Charleston needs that. And I was like, but who's going to do it? Who has the money to do that shit? You know what I mean? <laughs> and then when I sold the house, I was like, well, I guess I do. So uh, I- I'm hoping that I have this Pod Piper effect follow us here from the name of the band. So that's why it's called Trident Studios, because the Trident is the Byzantine logo. So um, I've been blessed with already renting out every room that's here before it's constructed. Um, so that's that's given me a good kick in the ass. Like, hey, I think you're on to something. Yeah. Perfect. So before you turn your amp off for good, like later on down the road, what do you want people to remember about metal musicians in Appalachia? Like, what's your ultimate goal? Oh, man, that's a, that's heady. What do I want people to think about metal musicians? Or like? just, you know, what is your mission? My mission. Yeah, yours, period. You know, it's weird, but it goes back to just like when I was a kid, when I was 18 and stuff, I just kind of want my parents to, you know, pat me on the back and say, hey, you did a good job. You didn't, you know, you make us proud. I want to make some, I want to make people proud. Um, My parents, I want to make my friends proud. My kids now who've never seen me play music. I've got an 11 year old, a three year old. You know, they, they just they just think daddy just takes off and goes build stuff. You know, I want them to be able to see. And then I want West Virginia in general to look at me as a citizen and say, I'm proud that he's from here. You know, I'm proud he's from Logan County. Um, so I, I wake up every day trying to think, what can I what can I do to make uh, make um, a mark positively in this area? when people think of Logan County or Charleston or West Virginia in general or music coming from here, they'd be like, hey, that Ojeda dude, you know, he's he's a he's a beacon. You know, he hasn't screwed anything up royally. So I'm hoping by the end of that, because a lot of times when you're a musician and you're a leader of the band, you tend to piss off a lot of people. A lot of times you have to step over people to get where you want. I'm hoping at the end of it, I can look back and be like, you know, I didn't have to you know, step over too many people. I had to help a lot of people because I got a lot of help. Yeah. Perfect. Last question. What would you tell that kid out there that's 
insane on you know doing arpeggio sweeps all day just practicing so they can leave because they don't think they can do it here what would you tell them on uh you know uh, to kind of change their mind or or if not what would you just say well one of the things and and this is something that when i was 18 i thought the exact same thing i gotta go to dallas i gotta get to you know somewhere outside of here to make it and i just really didn't realize that how green the grass was here until I went somewhere else and realized, man, they got all these other problems and they don't have that identity and that underdog fight that I was raised in. Um, Things, the world has got much smaller, especially in the music industry. You can do anything you want to from, from West Virginia, just as if you moved to New York city, you can always travel there. You know what I mean? Um, West Virginia affords you a a a, a sustainable living. You know the cost of living's not not crazy. I've got friends who are in the music industry that moved to LA and New York, and they rent like one bedroom apartments for more than you can get six thousand square foot homes here. You know, uh, I, and also. The pride that uh, uh, that you get from being able to achieve something from a place here where people always think that you know you're never going to make it that's in, that's insurmountable. You know, I, 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 a lot of my friends in the bigger cities they're like, man, I, I wish I had something like behind. I wish I had a whole, a whole state behind me. We don't even have the city behind me. They're like, you guys got the whole state. Like, yeah, man, it's 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 special coming from here. Chris Ojeda, I appreciate your voice giving metal memories in my life and also for the honest conversation about Byzantine's climb to give us Appalachians inspiration. You can find out more about Byzantine by visiting their Facebook page, streaming their music, buying their merch, and all things metal by visiting byzantinemetal.com. Appalachian Startup is a bi-weekly podcast, so be sure to check back for more stories of entrepreneurship. Like us on Facebook and Instagram and support the show by grabbing a sticker from our online store at AppalachianStartup.com. Review our podcast on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud as well. We are on Patreon. You can support the show there and allow us to showcase more businesses in Appalachia. Stay tuned for more stories of underdogs on the rise.